So let's take our Bibles and open it to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5. One helpful reason why we do expository preaching, which is where we take a book um, and we study it from the beginning till the end, passage by passage, is that it protects the pastor when he's preaching that. Because sometimes um, the Bible brings up very sensitive topics, and when those topics are, are coming up at random, people might be wondering, is this because the pastor has an agenda? Is he, does he want to say something um, specifically here um, but if we just say no this is just the next verse in our text it's not because the pastor has an agenda but the bible has an agenda for us now our text today is one of those texts why because it's speaking about paying pastors that's what it's about <laughs> it's about how to support pastors paying salaries for pastors so again um, understandably any sermon on money might be suspect right Either the church is all about money, and when the money comes up, people say, oh, here we go again. Or when it's never addressed, and suddenly the pastor talks about money, people start worrying, is the pastor okay? I wonder if they're okay financially. How are they doing? But no, uh, this is just this text in the Lord's Day service, and therefore we just study it and see what God says about that topic. Okay, so let's read it together, uh, 1 Timothy 5 from verse 17 up until the end of the, the chapter, and then we'll pray. 1 Timothy 5 from verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. <coughs> in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. It's the reading of God, so let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It teaches us how to think biblically, correctly about things like money and things about pastors and how to deal with sinning pastors. Lord, please help us. I pray that we as a church at Heritage Baptist will think right about this, that we would not show any favoritism to any man, but that anyone, Lord, who, who needs correction 
who needs to submit themselves under these verses, that you would help us to do that. Thank you, Lord, that you are our chief shepherd, that you guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text divides neatly into three aspects or matters pertaining to pastors. First, verses 17 to 18 is about paying pastors. Verses 19 to 21 is about correcting pastors. And then the last line is about how to install pastors. So first on our list is we're going to consider verse 17 to 18, paying pastors. Now what this section has in common with the previous section about widows is that of honoring. Did you notice that in verse 3? Look at verse 3 when it says, Honor widows who are truly widows. And then verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. So both sections deal, deal, deals with honoring widows and honoring elders or pastors. And we've seen in the widow section, honoring isn't just respect. It also includes financial support to care for widows. It has the same meaning here when it says elders who, who labor in preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor because of the next verse. The next verse makes it clear that it's about financial support when it says, For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So you see, these verses is about paying pastors for doing their job. This is the biblical basis for giving pastors salary so that they can devote themselves to the full-time ministry of the word. Now notice for whom this honor is due. It says, let the elders who rule well. This honor is reserved for elders who rule well. The Bible uses the word elder, pastor, overseer, bishop, whatever title you want to give these people interchangeably. It's just speaking of the same person from different angles. So it's not biblical to have a pastor and a bishop on the side or a, a bishop and a, or a pastor and an elder on that side. No, it's the same thing. The, the Bible uses the words interchangeably. So elders here are pastors, leaders in the church. Notice the, word, notice the plural. It doesn't say let the elder, singular. It says let the elders, plural. In other words, the, in one church, there was the expectation that there would be more than one pastor more than one elder who are ruling the church and managing the church. It's a very common practice today, and I think it's a very unhealthy practice to have a church with only one pastor, one preaching pastor, one teaching elder. Now, I'm thankful in our case, we are a young church, we're a church plant, but even I myself, I have Pastor Michael and Lelo from Johannesburg that's helping me shepherd the church. So for that, I am deeply thankful. And Lord willing, that's where we would like to be, where we have a church of multiple elders who can also shepherd the flock and preach the word. Now this text also clarifies who the leaders are of the church. It says, let the elders who rule well, the elders rule. Not in a worldly sense, not in a selfish sense, but in a godly, biblical, Christ-like sense. It's the same, the word rule is the same word used in chapter 3. Just look over at chapter 3, verse 4 to 5, when it says he must manage. So it's the same Greek word. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The same kind of leadership a husband and a father is to exercise at his home is the same kind of leadership required at the church. It's a selfless 
self-sacrificial um, leadership. It's not a dictatorship. It's the kind of Ephesians 5 verse 25 where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yet, it also includes real authority. So although it's a self-sacrificial uh, leadership, it also is a leadership. It has authority. The elders need to make the, the decisions. They are accountable to God. Just like a husband is accountable to God for his family, so the elders are responsible for his family, the household of God. This is a sobering thing for us to think about. It means that submission is required of the, the members of the church and the elders will be held accountable for how they shepherded the flock. Now, we live in a very highly individualized society where we think that church is optional, that to belong to a church is not really necessary as long as I have my own relationship with the Lord. But the Bible teaches that God has given the church elders, given the church pastors, and God will, will hold them accountable for the sheep. This is a verse not many Christians know about, but listen to Hebrews 13 verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Who will give an account to the Lord? The leaders. That's why it says, We who teach, must, there mustn't be many who teach, for we will undergo a stricter judgment. God is going to ask pastors about the sheep. By the way, this is one of those verses that shows why church membership is biblical. Why it's biblical to say, I want to be a member of a church and not just a visiting person of the church. Because you need to have leaders. You need to have someone that says, I'm watching over your soul. I know who the sheep are by name. But if someone comes one Sunday and then next Sunday they're gone and then they're at that church and then that church, how can anyone shepherd that person? In other words, the chief shepherd doesn't want his sheep to wander to be alone. So when it comes to leadership in the church, it's often the church as a whole that has authority and the pastors or the elders have to submit to the church, but I don't think that's a biblical model. I think the Bible teaches that the elders, the pastors have authority, they are accountable, they need to lead, and the church needs to submit and to trust their pastors. Now, I just want to say, this is not a heel to die on. There are many other biblical faithful churches who would disagree with me on this point. But I think there is a consistency in the Bible about who the leaders of the church are. Now, we also see another thing in verse 17. Look at verse 17 again. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So notice there's, every elder must be able to teach. But then there's a subgroup within the elders who are more giving themselves to the preaching and the teaching. They go ahead. I love the way Paul phrases this word. How, what does he call it in verse 17? He says they are doing what in preaching and teaching? They are laboring. Laboring. The word means to work to the point of exhaustion, to the point of fatigue. It's hard work. To preach, to preach well, to preach the text accurately. The same word is used in other contexts of the hard-working farmer who has to rise up early. Just turn with me to 2 Timothy 2.15. I think this captures the attitude every elder must have when it comes to the Bible. 2 Timothy 
Paul says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So the question here is, what would cause someone to be ashamed in that passage? When they do not handle the word of truth accurately, there would be reason to be ashamed because God is going to hold us, the teachers, the pastors, the teachers, um, accountable for every sermon. That's a scary fact. A lazy pastor has reason to be ashamed of himself when he just walks up to the council and says something like this, well, I haven't prepared anything for this Sunday sermon. I'm just going to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through me today. That's wrong. And it's often wrongly based on a verse like this, Matthew 10 verse 19. So this is often the verses used. It says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. That's true. That's in the Bible. But the context there is about persecution. When people would drag us in persecution in front of courtrooms, we should not premeditate how we are going to answer. We should trust that in that moment, God will help us that it would be the Spirit to speak through us. But that verse has nothing to do with the week in, week out, laboring pre in preaching and teaching. The feeding of God's flock. To preach the Word takes hours of study, praying, trusting the Spirit to help, and to carefully prepare that study into a meal for God's people to eat. Alistair Begg said it well. He said, the pastor who knows nothing about breaking his back and breaking his heart should not be in the ministry. Let me say that again. The pastor who knows nothing about breaking his back and breaking his heart should not, has no business to be in the ministry. And since it is labor and work, it makes sense, therefore, that we need to pay pastors who work. Right? It's just a very basic biblical principle. If you do any work, do you do work for free? No. When you work, there's, you expect somebody to pay you. Right? That's what verse 18 is about. Look at verse 18 again. What does it say? 1 Timothy 5 verse 18. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox when it trades out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now Paul quotes from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. To make this point, this is not just an Old Testament principle to be paying people in full-time ministry. Remember the Levites and the priests, the same thing. They were full-time employed in the temple and they had their meals from the sacrifices that the people of God brought. The same thing is true in the New Testament. The elders, the pastors who are leading the church, is to get their wage from the church as they serve the people of God. So the first one is by Deuteronomy 25 and the second one is in Luke 10 verse 4. So here's a side note. It shows that the early church thought of the Gospels and the New Testament epistles as Scripture. It's inspired. So when Paul says later all Scripture is inspired, he thinks of the Gospel of Luke as well. So the first quotation is a very beautiful image. You should not muzzle the ox. Now in that culture, an ox was tied to something like a pole, and the ox had to go around and around in a circle to tread out the grain so that they could get the grain and separate it from the chaff. The chaff. Now that was hard work. Now what some greedy, selfish farmers would do is they would muzzle the ox. They would put something over its mouth 
so that as it work, it's working, it won't be able to eat as well. It was to say, I want every last cent of income. But God says, don't do that. Let the ox freely eat as a reward for its labor. You know what? It's not just merciful, it's also wise. If you feed the ox, it's going to keep on working. Now, it's not, one, it's not a beautiful compliment to be compared to an ox, okay? But I would rather be an ox than bull, but I can't change that now. Now, the question is, why is God so concerned about oxen? Why does he care so much about animals? Well, Paul saw that, and he applied it to gospel workers here and in 1 Corinthians 9. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul quotes the same verse again in 1 Corinthians 9. And he applies it to gospel workers. 1 Corinthians 9 from verse 7. So keep your finger in 1 Timothy. Listen to 1 Corinthians 9 verse 7. He says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in the hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ." Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus said in Luke 10. The disciples should take no money with them as they were going out in missions because they were to stay with people. And he says, the laborer deserves his wages. You should be fed by the people you are ministering to. So do you see the point? Paul saying, if we are to care even for animals like oxen, should we not even take care of pastors? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Right? So Paul says, yes. That's the principle. Now, Paul said, I didn't make use of that right myself, just so that you don't get the wrong idea. Pastors shouldn't be in the ministry to get rich. That's the big problem today, is there are too many pastors that's in it for the business, in it for the money, instead of because they love God's word and love God's people. Sadly, many churches pride themselves of not paying their pastor well. They think that's a virtue. So this is common saying, we will keep him poor and God will keep him humble. Right? That's just not the biblical attitude. And Alistair Begger at a conference with pastors had this one man came up and asked a question. He said, Pastor, I have a question. It's not about another pastor. It's about the pastor's wife. You know, this pastor's wife, she's frequently um, isolating herself. She, she looks like she's frequently bitter towards the church. Can you give us any advice about how to deal with this pastor's wife? And Alistair Begg, shooting from the hip, and he says he doesn't do that a, long, a lot. So I think that was a very, the Lord has led him in that moment. But he said the following, pay the pastor $5,000 more a year. And there was quiet in the room. And later, someone came to that past, to Alistair Begg and said, you know what, you hit the, the, the issue on the head because that pastor's wife could never buy for her own children's shoes. She couldn't afford it. 
They were always getting hand-downs from the church, and the church thought it was a virtue to just keep the pastor poor. Uh, That's not to be our attitude, beloved. Our attitude should be one of generosity, not greed. Now, the obvious question now is, then how much should we pay our pastor? Well, I think it's better to have a principle rather than a rule, but listen to Titus 3.13. I think this is a good principle. Paul says, Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. I think that's the principle. I think the church should aim to pay their pastors so that they shouldn't be worried about money, but worried about the preaching of the word. Now, of course, if you live in cities like Joburg, um, the salary there would look a lot different than the salary here in Pochevstroem, right? So you should also keep in, into account how much living expenses cost in the area you're living at. Now, I'm thankful to say to the Lord that this church, Heritage Baptist, and with the church in Joburg have more than met all of our needs. So I, I don't say this out of experience, but out of observation. But I am thankful to the Lord for your generosity. And if you have any doubt, you can check with Deborah. Okay, just ask her. She'll tell you the truth. <laughs> okay. So that's the first aspect of dealing with pastors. We need to pay our pastors, especially those who preach in, uh, in the word. Now, secondly, a very obvious next question is, okay, now how do we correct our pastors? If we have to pay them and if they are the leaders, what do we do in the case when pastors are sinning and they are going off the rails? Well, that's the next section, correcting pastors. And Paul begins with a caution in verse 19. He says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If a pastor does his job well, there will be accusations and charges against him. Joseph, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Nehemiah were all falsely accused by other people. Even the perfect man who never sinned once was called a Samaritan, having a demon and a glutton and a drunkard. Our Lord Jesus was called all of those things. Amos 5 verse 10 gives the idea well. Listen to Amos 5 verse 10. It says, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. You see, when a, a pastor does his work well, when he confronts people in their sin, people will not like that man. Therefore, Paul says, don't accept an accusation just on one witness. That is a way to protect pastors. The charge should have at least two or three witnesses. That's another Old Testament principle. And again, our Lord Jesus upheld that. So again, Old and New Testament has the same principle, have two or three witnesses. A witness, I might be stating the obvious, is someone who's witnessed the same thing. It's not just gathering supporters for yourself. It is someone that has observed and seen the same thing. Only then can you start investigating it further. So what is to be done when those accusations are brought? It is investigated and the pastor is found guilty. What then? Verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So this public rebuke shows that the sin of the pastor was a serious sin. It wasn't a a slight failure. It was a big sin, things like adultery or things like stealing money or something in that line. And the reason why the sin should be rebuked publicly 
is because his ministry is public. A public leader requires a public rebuke. That's the principle. What is often done today, sadly, is that when a pastor is guilty, his sins are either um, swept under the rug or he's quietly moved to another city, another place, another town to do ministry there because he's sinned in this area. And we should, not, we should not tolerate things like that. A pastor who is in ministry in public should be corrected publicly. I remember with the issue with Ravi Zacharias when his life was investigated and people started exposing his sexual sin. Some people were very upset, like, why can't we just leave him alone? Why make this public? Why talk about it now after he's died? Why not just leave it? Well, he had a public ministry and therefore required a public correction. It vindicates both the victims and the gospel. You see, if, we, if pastors can sin and the church stays silent, what do we really say to the world about sin, about the gospel? And what about those victims, especially if a pastor has sinned against somebody else and the church stays silent? We say to the victims, it's not, not so bad what happened to you. But no, when we, we call out, according to God's word, that what that man did was evil in the sight of God, according to his word, and God's word does not approve it, we vindicate God's word and the gospel. Paul did this with the apostle Peter. He rebuked him publicly. Listen to Galatians 2.14. It says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? See, Paul called out Cephas, Peter, in front of everybody. And Paul practiced what he preached. That's why he writes this. But it has another effect on the church. Look at verse 20 again. What, what would be the effects? As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Rebuking sin publicly kills the desire for sin privately. Do you see what that does? When we say, adult, we've caught someone in adultery and that is exposed before everybody, you're going to think twice before you do the same sin. That's one of the ways God has made this, is to, is to, to cleanse his church, cleanse his bride from secret sins, private sins. And lest Timothy is too scared to do this. Now I can imagine if we in a church have to do this with another pastor, imagine how scary that must be. So Paul emboldens Timothy with verse 21. Look at what he says to, in verse 21. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. It would have been easy for Timothy to do something from prejudging, meaning already concluding if somebody is innocent or guilty before he's weighed the evidence. But on the flip side, he might also be tempted to partiality towards elders who are his friends. He might be tempted to not to rebuke those, but to have another way to do it. But Paul says, don't do that. I charge you to keep these rules in the presence of God and of Christ and of the elect angels. It is a sobering reminder for all of you and us that even if men get away with things on earth, there is a witness in heaven that you cannot escape 
God, the Lord Jesus, even the angels are witnesses to you, to what you do and what you say. So the mention of elect angels reminds us about judgment day. It is to be distinguished with holy angels. They are the holy angels. Jesus often, when he spoke of judgment day, he spoke of him coming with the angels. Listen to Mark 8, just as one example. Mark 8, 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Those in authority now will one day themselves be judged by God. Therefore, they sh- we should, as elders and as the church, we should fear God and not man. We should not ask, but how, what is going to be the effect of this? Or how are people going to think about us if we do this? Don't worry what the world thinks. This is what God says we should do. We should fear him and do it. Now, this should make you think about your life, your private life as well. If you were to stand before God without any savior, without any mediator, without Christ, no sin you have ever done will be passed over or forgotten. You will give an account for every careless word you have spoken on this earth. Every act of sin of disobedience and every good work that you refuse to do will be brought before the presence of God and his holy angels. Who of you would be able to stand on judgment day without Jesus. Listen to Psalm 130 verse 3. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who of us could stand? Who of us would make it? But the very next verse, I love it, One Psalm 130 verse 4, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That is our only hope. That Christ took all our sins upon himself on the cross, both the public sins as well as the private sins. He took it all on the cross. He bore the wrath of God for our sins so that every sinner who believes will be saved and cleansed and forgiven. So for all of us, that is our rock. Run to Christ. Run to your Savior. Throw yourself on his mercies. Only he is good enough to save you and able to save you from all your sins. And yet, even though we are justified, we are cleansed and forgiven, even for believers there will be a judgment day. It won't be a heaven or hell judgment day, for nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even our sins, not even our failures, but we will give an account to him. And that should make you think, So, beloved, stop asking this question. What will people think of me? How will this affect how people view me if I do this thing? That question should be thrown in the dustbin. It's irrelevant. The only question you should be worried about is what would God think of me if I do this? How would I please God or not in this decision? Let that be the motivating force behind everything you do. This is how Timothy is to live his life, with the conscience awareness that his life is open before God the Father, God the Son, and the holy angels. And lastly, let's consider, well, installing pastors. We've seen paying our pastors or honoring them. 
correcting our pastors and the procedure given. And then lastly, let's see, how should we install pastors? Now, again, you can imagine how tempting this must have been for Timothy. There were already men in the church that were removed from pastoral ministry. He has to probably rebuke some pastors and elders in public. So there's vacancies everywhere. And Timothy might be very tempted to just rush the process and just install new ones, new pastors to fill the void. But Paul says, resist that, because if you install unqualified elders and pastors, you are actually not solving anything. You're creating new problems. Listen to verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. It was the practice in the early church, as they ordained new pastors, new elders, or sent out missionaries, that they would lay hands on them and prayed for them and ordained them in that way. So Paul's saying, don't be too quick to lay hands on someone that you haven't examined. Don't be too quick to push someone into eldership, into, into, into a pastoral ministry, and not know what that person is doing. That's why he says, do not, um, don't, don't share in their sins, because if you have laid your hands on a man, to install him as an elder, and that man is an unqualified elder and he's sinning, you have a share in that. You are in some way responsible. So stay pure. Don't be too quick. And he gives the basis in verse 24 to 25. Just read that again with me. The sins of some people are conspicuous, or, or some translations obvious or clear, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Some people's sins will be so obvious, you should never think of them as elders or pastors. But other people's sins are more secret. But upon closer investigation, you will notice, okay, this man, I thought he was qualified, but he isn't because I've examined him. Some people's sins are more secret, and vice versa. Some people are obviously gifted and qualified to be elders and pastors, and other people might look like unqualified, but as you examine their life, you say, wow, this person is really, really qualified. So loved ones, we should never be in a rush to install elders or deacons for that matter just to fill the quota, just to give the, the, get the right number. It is always better to have, unqual- to have no elders and deacons than to have unqualified elders and deacons. But did you notice Paul interrupted his train of thought and he inserted in verse 23 a very interesting verse. Look at verse 23. I like the ESV, puts it in brackets. He says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy had some health issues. He was literally, you could say, sick to the stomach with all the problems he had to deal with, right? Maybe because of the the ministry. But the mention of the word pure, when Paul says, keep yourself pure, might have triggered Paul's advice here because Timothy might have been tempted to, to abstain completely from wine. Remember, the false teaching in Ephesus was also that of forbidding foods that God has given to be enjoyed. And wine was probably one of those things that was on the list. No alcohol. So perhaps Timothy said, I'm not going to drink wine at all because I want to be pure. But Paul says, no, it's not worth neglecting your body due to self-denial. If your body might benefit from something, use it. We must care both for our souls and our bodies, even through natural means like medicine. And in this case, wine. Now, I'm not saying if you have a stomach problem, okay, go and use a little wine. 
What I would say is if you have a stomach problem, go see a little doctor. Okay, literally little, <laughs> just to stick with the Bible here, okay. No, but that's the wise thing. I think Paul knew Timothy well enough to know that wine helped. So you could say to Timothy, use a little bit of wine. So there is no virtue in self-denial which does the body more harm than good. That's not holy. And before anyone gets the wrong idea, he says, use a little wine. (laughs) In chapter 3, he said, an elder mustn't be addicted to much wine. Okay, the Bible warns against drunkenness and do not drink much wine, but a little wine, that's fine. A little wine, that's fine. You can make that a status. Okay, one commentator said this, genuine purity is not about keeping man-made laws which have the effect of denying God's goodness in creation. Rather, he's to use God's gifts with thanksgiving, which includes the imbibing of a little wine to assist Timothy in his health. So here we have God's guidance on dealing with pastors. It's, it's wonderful. God gives us how to deal with these men, these leaders in the church. So we should show them double honor, which includes paying them so that the laborer deserves his wages. We must protect our pastors, refuse to listen to gossip or um, people with one accusation with one witness. And then, if they are guilty, we should deal with it seriously, rebuke them in the, in, the, in the presence of all. And when we install new elders, we must not be hasty, but seek to be diligent in examining their lives, because some sins appear later and some good works appear later. In all of this, I want to remind us that all of our lives are before the eyes of God, before the eyes of Jesus and before the eyes of his holy angels. What kind of life are you living Are you living like this? Are you living a faithful life? Even doing good things that you know nobody would see, but you don't care because you do it before the audience of one. Or are you you secretly entertaining secret sins because you know nobody will catch you? Today is the invitation for all of us to, to repent, to come to Christ and to serve him faithfully. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we need your mercy not to do anything out of prejudging or partiality, but that we would fear your name, know that everything we do, everything we think is open and exposed before you. Lord, let let us fear you more than we fear man and so desire to please you, to, to live for you. Lord, now even as we prepare our hearts and our minds for communion, that you would search us by your Holy Spirit. Search our hearts, Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in us. And help us, Lord, to lay it down and to follow Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.